Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is uh, powerful and whose love works eternally for our good and for our protection. Father, it's in these times that we need trust. We need to believe. We need faith. We want to have faith. We ask that you strengthen our faith uh, to believe in your rule, that you do rule the world with truth and love and righteousness, that, um, that even uh, when we are weak, that we can gain strength by seeking the kingdom. We ask you to give us faith to um, leave the anxiety behind and to trust in your past mercies that we have seen you work in the past and we know that you're good for your word to work in the, in the future. Father, give us faith to understand your purpose and to see your love unfolding as history unfolds. Father, we ask you to give us faith so that we can have um, the calmness and the courage to do what you've called us to do, that you give us the power uh, of your love to uh, melt even the hardest of hearts, that you give us the power of love that's, uh, that uh, has swallowed up our sin. Father, we ask you to give us the faith to trust in your, your, uh, your power and your force to, uh, to melt conscious, consciousness and to um, renew us and to revive us. Father, we also ask for faith to believe in the ultimate victory of the Holy Spirit, that uh, you do have power over darkness and it does not overcome the light. And Father, we ask that you give us faith to rest in your hands, that we put in your hands our, not only our own lives, but the lives of the people we love, those people that uh, we want to remember right now that come to our minds. Father, we give them to you and trust them in your hands. Father, rid our hearts of doubt and skepticism and anger. Father, remove the paralyzing fears that may be in our lives. Re replace it with your spirit that is full of joy. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Last week we looked at uh, uh, truth. Is this working here? It's not on yet. Sorry about that. We were looking at truth last week. If you tuned in last week, uh, that, uh, that truth is like this thing of beauty out there. And, uh, but it just seems just a little bit beyond reach. And uh, it just seems that, that we just can't quite grab hold of it. And just like the other values that we've been looking at, uh, justice, love, spirituality, freedom. Truth is the same way. Truth points in two directions. It points us to God. It's that universal, transcendental truth that points us to God, but at the same time, it points to our brokenness. It points to where, why we cannot seem to get a hold of it. We cannot seem to, to grasp it and, and do it right. Uh, if, you know, if you did tune in last week, what I was trying to say is that we, uh, what I was trying to say, which I did not do a very good job of it last week, um, we always have this, this kind of thing in our home when I go home and, and ask Sue's evaluation of the sermon. And, uh, she, and we have this kind of running commentary that she'll say, if it's not, not that great, she'll say, 
Well, it wasn't your best effort, was it? <laughs> well, <laughs> last week I beat her to it. I told her, I know, honey, this was not my best effort, was it? But what I was trying to say is that we, have, uh, we all have this idea of knowledge in our heads, but we really don't know uh, that we have to depend on shared knowledge. We have to depend on what's gone before us and the people around us. We actually believe our community of faith. We may have a little area of expertise, but as we call it today, our lane, and that lane may be small, and, uh, but we have to depend on our community of, uh, of information, of truth, to repeat what we think is true. And we really have to kind of come to grips with that. And we depend on that. And there's really not a way we can do that. And that's why we really need to show grace to one another. Because uh, we really don't know uh, so much. We have to depend on other people. Uh, as we look in the big truth, we're going to be looking at John chapter 14. And uh, one of the good examples of this is some of these things we have in our world, like the Great Pyramid, uh, with the Great Pyramids. I understand, I just heard that, just was listening to a podcast, and I think they said they may have discovered maybe 1%, maybe 1% of the pyramids in Egypt. But uh, this is the Great Pyramid, and they estimate it, you know, it took thousands and thousands of workers over decades to complete this one thing. They depended on each other, the common knowledge to do that. The, uh, the Cathedral of Milan was started in the 14th century uh, with engineers and, and architects and all this, and the facade wasn't even finished till Napoleon completed it in the 18th century, and it really wasn't completely finished till the 20th century, and now they're going back and doing repairs and stuff. So this was required tons of technology, tons of, of architectural know-how that was just passed on through the centuries from generation to generation, and thousands of workers to put this together. It wasn't just one person. We had to depend on shared knowledge. Same thing with putting the man on the moon. They say that it took over 400,000 scientists, technicians, and engineers to do this one thing. We have to depend on each other, and we have to depend on this community of knowledge to do things, and that, that is a double-edged sword. Uh, we can build something like the, the Cathedral of Milan because of shared knowledge, or we can build a house of cards, and that's the problem. Uh, we're not sure which is which. Are we building a cathedral or are we building a house of cards? And that is a problem. That's why we come to the, um, the big truth, what I'm calling the big truth. Um, it it's all depends on, on uh, shared knowledge. First uh, John tells us that, that uh, we are all sinners, and if we don't admit that, then we, don't have, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that alone should tell us a warning that we are deceiving ourselves and we're really good at deceiving ourselves and the truth, the truth is not in us. And so when Jesus said that um, the truth shall set you free, he was not talking about some existential truth, something out there that's true. Uh, you see those words engraved on just, you know, probably hundreds of institutions. And the idea is that if you just find the facts, if you just find the truth, then it will set you free. And, uh, and these institutions are saying then we're the ones that are in pursuit of truth. And therefore, if you find the truth and reality, you will be set free. Come here and learn what that truth is. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about him being the truth, the big truth, the one that really is, where everything is built on, that the son became human flesh, that God became human. And this truth is not found through suspicion or hearsay or anger. 
This truth is found because we discover it. It's not something we create. We discover it, we find it. The truth that Jesus is talking about is a gift. It is the grace of God. It is given to us. It's not something we invent. It's not something we try to create. It's not a story we try to tell ourselves. It is something that we discover. It is reality. And this is that man, that God became man. And this is a mystery. It is beyond our understanding. And yet at the same time, it is our only hope. It is our only hope as, as a community. And chapter 14, John chapter 14 um, shines a light on this. There's several people who want, to, who want to present a shrunken truth of the big truth, a smaller truth, a littler truth, if I could say that. And some of those little truths is one, some people will say, we only need Jesus as a teacher. And we'll say that his teaching is enlightened and we love the enlightenment. We love the, what he's saying. I, I'm all for that. I'm all for what Jesus taught. But all the miracles, the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitudes, the death and resurrection, I'm not too keen on. But your teaching, yeah, that's enlightened. That's a shrunken truth. Another one will say, we only need Jesus for his blood. That uh, that's the only thing we need him for, to die and, and rise from the dead so that we can go to heaven. And you listen to some people and you think that, that the gospel is only Matthew's chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew's chapter 27 and 28 and everything in between is kind of give or take. You can take it or leave it. That, true, that too is a shrunken truth. Uh, I love the creeds, but one of my gripes about the creeds and it seems to communicate this, that the incarnation and the crucifixion are really the only two important things in the New Testament. And then we'll go to Paul for the rest of the stuff. Those are shrunken tooth, truths. Those are truth decays. But chapter 14 shines a light on all those. And the chapter 14 takes and takes those shrunken truths and says, they don't hold up. They don't hold up under, under pressure. That the great truth, the big truth, is something much, much bigger than that. And we see this in chapter 14. In chapter 13 kind of leads up to this, as we all know, that chapter 13 begins to lead up to chapter 14, and it's introducing the idea that Jesus is caring for his disciples. This long discourse, and beginning in chapter 14, this long sermon that Jesus gives, or actually a talk with the disciples, he's not so concerned about what happens to him. He's more concerned about what's going to happen to them what's going to happen to the disciples. And that's what brings it more important. And he says, you're going to have troubled hearts. And we're going to look at this deeper truth in chapter 14 that, that Jerry read. I want to, it's going to, we're just going to look at the big points here. And then we're going to look at some applications because it's a long, detailed passage. But we do want to look at some things. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's, he's worried about their troubled hearts. He's worried about their concern uh, about them. He says, um, you know, death is, is part of the devil's realm. It's part of the enemy's realm. And he says, the only remedy for this is faith. The only remedy for it is to trust me. You know, if, if this is what's going to happen to me, and they're going to go after you as well. But just trust me, he says. Faith in him. He says, believing in me, believing in the Son, is like believing in the Father. And he says this also back in... in um, in chapter 12, he says, When a man believes in me, he does not just believe in me, but he believes in the one who sent me. Jesus is not saying that believing in him is a prerequisite for believing in God. He's not saying that it's a criteria for believing God. He's saying it's one and the same. It's the same thing. You believe in Jesus, you're believing in God. You're believing in the Father. It's all the same thing. 
And he repeats that in, in chapter 12. Then in verse 2 and 3, it's a little bit difficult. That's when that famous passage that there's a mansion and he's, he, he's created space for everyone. And it's a little bit difficult to say exactly what this is. And our imaginations can go and say, oh, it's some big mansion in the sky. And we even sing about things like that. What I think Jesus is saying, Ed, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here because it's not the main point, but what I think Jesus is saying here is this, is that when, if you go back to chapter 2, he calls the temple my father's house. And then John goes on to define the temple as Jesus' body. And I think what he is saying there is that I have, as a son, have a place of union with the father. And everyone that comes to me also has union with me and with the father. And being in the mansion, being in my father's house is to be in union with the Savior. And being in union with the Savior means being in union with the Father. That being in union with God the Father, that is the destination of where we're going. And he's using this metaphor. It's not, it's not a literal building, but it's being in union with Christ. That where Christ is, that's where we will be. If Christ is with the Father, then we also will be with the Father. And then in verse 5 Thomas has this question. I love Thomas. You know, he kind of gets, I still think he gets a bad rap. Uh, it, it, in chapter 20, you know, you, he's the one who says, he know, Thomas knows the difference between a spirit leaving a body at death and resurrection. He knows the difference. There is a difference. And so when he goes and the disciples are talking about resurrection, he knows it's not just the spirit of Jesus going on somewhere. He knows a bodily rose from the dead. And he goes, okay, if that's right, I want to see the wounds. I want to see the body. Well, we all know the story. Jesus shows up and says, okay, here you, here you go. And then he says this great declaration that all disciples will declare from then on, my Lord and my God. And every Christian from history on repeats that same declaration, my Lord and my God. Well, he has another question here. And when I'm reading these discourses and things in the Gospels, I like to try to imagine myself in the conversation and, and I kind of jot down, what would I ask? Well, if I were there, I would ask the same question that Thomas asked. To me, it's a perfectly logical question. Jesus is talking about this place, this mansion, and he says, okay, Jesus, if we don't know the destination, how are we going to know how to get there? How are we going to know the way to get there? Perfectly logical question. And Jesus, and Jesus answers in a most profound way of this deeper, big truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you get to the Father by me. It can't get any plainer than that. He says, I am the way. I am the way to do that. If you remember the, from the, our study in Hebrews, the Qumran, those people who kind of retreated from the desert and they're waiting for the Messiah to deliver them and, and the rest of Judaism was all, you know, her heretics and they were all lost and they're waiting for the Messiah to come and save the faithful remnant. They called their, their way the way. This is the way. We, we obey the law. In Acts, the following Jesus was called the way. And he's saying this is the way. That this is the main object of this verb, that I am the way. I am, not, I am more than a guide. I am more than a leader. I am the way to the Father. I am the way to get there. I am the gate. 
Now, sometimes I think we present the gospel as if Jesus was in the way. And we have to get people to say just the right word, say the right prayer, do the right thing, do the right response. And uh, Dallas Willard always joked, used to joke about, uh, about preachers who uh, would go on and on, on about there's nothing you can do to, to earn your salvation, and then they'll spend 20 minutes singing just as I am to try to get you to do something. Well, this is the way. When we, see, when we find people looking, groping around in the dark that are lost, we point them to Jesus because that's the way. Our job is to take their hand in the darkness and put it on the doorknob and say, go ahead and open it. Whatever you're longing for, here it is. This is the way you find it. You want to find, you want to find meaning. You want to find your place with God. You want to find what's out there. Well, let me tell you, this is how you can find it. He's not in the way. He is the way to find what we are longing for. And then he says, this is the way. I am the way because I am truth. I am truth. I am the reality. I am the only revelation of God that you're going to see. I am the one true revelation of God. I am the one true revelation of the Father. I am the one who has seen him. I'm the one who has been in its in his presence. I am it. I am it. We, we, we love to sing Jesus paid it all. Well, guess what? Jesus also made it all. And he makes men and women, he is able to make men and women the children of God the Father. He's not just saying I'm some metaphysical truth out here. I am truth personified. That is what we can count on. We can argue over lots of other things, but this is a given. This is reality. He is truth personified. He's not saying, I tell the truth. He's saying, I am the truth. And I am life. The way is life. If you're looking for life, then you have to look for me. What did he say in John 10 about the, his mission? My mission was to come and give you life and give you life to the full. I am here to give you the destination you're looking for, that, that union with the Father. And he's saying, I alone can give you life because I alone created life. If you're going to look for life, you want to look at the one who created it. And he says, I am alone can give that to you because I alone have created it. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, that was this external sign that was pointing to this eternal truth reality. He was pointing to something beyond what a, just the physical resuscitation of Lazarus. I am the life because I created life, he says. Then he goes on to say, to explain that knowing Jesus is the same thing as knowing Father. You want to know me? You know me, you know the Father. We don't have this idea of God and somehow try to fit Jesus into it. We look at Jesus to see what God is like. It's the other way around. And Philip, just like Thomas, also has a great question. He says, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. They, they understand more than the, Jude, the official Judaism. They understand more than the, the politicians and the religious leaders, but they're not quite there yet. He says, show us the Father. And what I think Philip is saying is this, is that 
When Moses came, he had these theophanies. He had these visions of God, and God demonstrated himself. And so Philip's saying, if, well, you'll be like that. I want you to be like that, because if we're going to get into this new covenant thing, I want you to do what Moses did. And Jesus is saying, you still don't get it. You don't need the theophany of God presenting himself to me because I'm here right in front of you. And when they talked about Israel being in covenant with God, they talked about knowing God. And that's why Jesus is using these words, know me, because you know me, you're already in the covenant. You're already in this new covenant. Yes, I am the author of the new covenant. And the way you enter into the covenant is to know me. You don't need the vision because it's right in front of you, right before your eyes. I always think of Chico Marx, and I'm a big Marx Brothers fan, and he has this great line, you know, where he's talking to somebody. He says, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Well, <laughs> there to believe, Jesus says, believe your own eyes. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the work. Believe what you've seen, and it's standing right in front of you. And then from then on, we say, my Lord and my God, trust in what you see. And he goes and he says that not only that, that you will have power to do the same kind of things that I'm doing. You will have power to carry out the mission that I'm giving you. You will have the power to do the kinds of things to scatter in the children of the nations. What I came and proclaimed here in Israel, you will then go and do in the world. You will then go and scatter, bring in the scattered children from the world. And the last of the section here that Jerry read is kind of Jesus saying, I'm establishing this new kingdom, this new with God life, this God with life, that, uh, that we will be commissioned and empowered. And he says that we are to be the truth. We are empowered to be the truth. We are become people of truth. Christians of all people should be people of truth. We are to live as people of truth. We are to live the truth. He says this truth is, so, is, a, is a truth that flows outward. This Jewish, this Jesus kingdom is flowing outward. The, the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus will flow outward from us. That we don't have to depend on these, what I, what, we don't have to collapse into this this modernistic and rationalistic approach that if I can just get the right arguments down and, and I can prove to you that, that Jesus is God, I can prove to you that the resurrection, those are all brittle, those are all crushed, that just doesn't, doesn't cut it. Not that they're not true, not that they're not good, it's just that it's not going to convince anybody. Our lives convince people. Our lives are what draw them in. And he's saying, you're not only to be the truth, you are to live the truth. And then he goes on to say, you are to tell the truth. And when he says that, he's not just saying, don't lie. He's saying, tell my story. Tell my story over and over and over again. That this story, that this truth is inner truth. It's not whether masks are effective or not. Or the, the earth revolves around the sun. This is not that kind of truth. This is truth that brings healing that brings hope, that brings, it's a new creation, a new reality on the inside. And we are to tell that. We are clothed now in this truth. And we are to tell Jesus' story. I, I was kind of smiling when I sent Jerry the passage for her to read this week, and she writes back, she goes, oh good, I love this passage. 
And I do too. I love this passage, John 14. It is one of the most beautiful sections in all of, in all of Scripture. And, and you can go on and, and read the rest of it. It's just, and I think because Jesus' heart for the disciples comes through on this, that his concern for us comes through on this. But unfortunately, this passage, this beautiful passage, is also in the midst of probably the darkest section in the book of John. Because after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the liars are out to get him. After Lazarus, that's when the plot starts to gel. That they are out to get him. That the people of the darkness are moving toward crucifixion. And Jesus confronts those opponents. And what do they say? You're demon-possessed. You're demon-possessed because your truth does not fit my truth. What you're saying about love and mercy and forgiveness and healing doesn't fit the reality that I'm living. It is wrong. It doesn't fit the power that I want to hold on to. It is wrong. So they say, you are demon-possessed because it doesn't fit the dark power. And how do we know it's dark power? Because they use violence. That they are moving toward the ultimate act of hostility by killing Jesus. This is truth that we say in our colloquialism, this is truth that comes from the barrel of a gun. You know, might makes right, that kind of thing. For Pilate, I guess it would be the, the sheath of a sword, maybe. But that's the point. That's how we know it's darkness. But darkness overreaches. It tries to do too much. Pilate's question is, when he's talking with Jesus, is what is truth? When you're the empire, you get to decide what is truth. Really, what is truth? That, that question would fit so well in our postmodern world. What is truth? And, and, and Pilate was, was right, in a way. Truth is beyond our reach. And he takes it out. And he says, I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus says, yes, you do. And he kind of wins at this point. But what he doesn't realize is that he's overreached. He's gone too far. And what God has done has lured death and lies and violence, all the decay and the corruption of the world. He has lured it in and then beat it. He lured it in and conquered it. He lured it all in till it exhausted itself and then overcame it. Pilate actually sabotages his own truth. He sabotages his own lies. And Paul says, if the religious leaders and the political leaders had known what they were doing, they never would have done it. Because Jesus overcame it. There is truth. And there is evil. That is nothing we can get away with. Get, get away from, I mean. The world is, is full of lies. And the world is full of death. Death itself tells us that it's a lie. It is saying that corruption, decay, 
and lies have the final word, but it does not have the final word. That decay and corruption and death, that is nothing but deceitful trash. That is not truth. God says, this is my world. And when Jesus came to this world, he said, welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. It is a world of life and truth and righteousness and love. And God is saying, this is my world. And death tries to sneer in the face of God. Jesus weeps in the face of death. Mary cries at the face of death. But then what? Her tears turn into joy. Because he has conquered it. And that is truth. This is my world. And I'm rescuing it. And I'm renewing it. That truth is not out of reach anymore we can hold on to it the deeper truth the big truth the big truth just going to just mention a few things that uh, that we can get from this passage the big truth is powerful but gentle the big truth says that Jesus is king and he rules the universe that's the big truth. It's full of creation, full of new creation. That death and shame have lost their power. That this is powerful but gentle. The big truth is the reality of love. Divine love made flesh right in front of our eyes. This is something, this is a declaration that Jesus makes that you can't even compare with other political leaders or other religious leaders. Nobody else can make that claim. And what he's saying is that humans have value, that we are worth saving. Probably my favorite line out of Oh Holy Night, Christmas carols have great theology. Okay, that's one of the reasons why we love singing them, because it has great theology. One of my favorite lines in Oh Holy Night, it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. When people don't feel worthy, we can say, look at the way. Let me show you the truth. Let me show you life. Let me take your hand and put it on the doorknob so that you can open it up. Let me point you to the good shepherd. He is the way and soul, our soul felt its worth. A deeper truth can be dangerous because this private truth that we hold on the inside becomes in this, in chapter 14, Jesus is telling, telling them that it will become public truth. And what they tried to do to me, they will try to do to you. And it can be dangerous. That the people who are telling lies, Jesus says, are from the darkness. They are from the darkness and they will try to do the same thing. They'll try to do the same thing to you that they did to me. A deeper truth is the epitome of goodness. Goodness means beneficial. It benefits you. Everyone who had an encounter with Jesus benefited from that encounter. That's what it means to be good. Jesus is saying, welcome to my world. It is good. I not only paid it all, I made it all. And when I made it all, I said it was very beautiful and it was very good. The big truth is the epitome 
of goodness. If it's not good, it's not part of the big truth. The big truth is that, God, that the Son of God became man. What's at stake? Reality. Actual reality is at stake here. What is true is true. Everything is what it is. It is reality. I can believe if my, my gas tank is empty, I can believe, I can wish, I have the full right to believe that I've got gas in my tank, but the reality is I'm not going to be able to start the car. We run up against reality. Dallas Willard, you can tell I'm a Dallas Willard fan, uh, reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong. And in the collusion, we always lose. Uh, another gifted writer in the spiritual life, Anthony DeMello, he's a, a Jesuit priest. He writes, in order to find truth, you must have an unremitting readiness to admit you may be wrong. We have to admit, first of all, that we're wrong. What's at stake? We live in a world where Christ is truth. This defines the very place that we live. This defines the place where we are. That means everything has to be reimagined. Everything has to be reconfigured. Everything has to be reoriented if this is true. If this is true, this is the way. He is truth. And if that's the way, then we have to adjust to it. And what is his way? His way is a downward path. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. That is the downward, downward path. The word is kenosis, that we empty ourselves, that he empties himself. And to follow his way means we empty ourselves. He chose this path. He could have stayed up there as a prince on a throne. He could have enjoyed the riches. He could have stayed with the privilege, but he didn't. He emptied himself. Why? Because God needed us for, to understand who he is. God needed us to understand that he loves us. God needed us to understand that he wants to redeem us and rescue us. And the only way to do that was for Jesus to take the path that he took. And this path of humiliation, of suffering, and ultimately death was a path he chose. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't by chance. It's the path he chose so that we would finally get it. And he took our sin upon himself so that we would understand that. And we would comprehend that. And we were declared righteous in his sight. We take the downward path when we lose detachment to, to our power, our control. We lose detachment to the things we have, our toys, our, our food. And we say, I'm detached from all that. And whatever I have, I use for God's plan. That's, for, that's detachment. That's the, that's, that's the kenosis. That's the emptying ourselves that whatever I have belongs to him and I'm willing to relinquish it. That prayer of relinquishment, Richard Foster has this old, this long essay on the prayer of relinquishment, that has wrecked my life. <laughs> it wrecks my life because it makes me let go of things I don't want to let go of. My image, my, my job, my family, my cars, my, my wife, everything. I have to let go of this. I have to be detached from that. And that relinquishes it. But it's also in the safest hands possible. What's at stake is the, the way. 
Eugene Peterson said the way is the most neglected metaphor in Western Christianity. That we want to jump over the way and get right to the truth and convince people we're right and the wind argument. But what's at stake? We as disciples are called to testify the truth and we do so as disciples of Jesus. In other words, we do it the Jesus way. We don't do it with contemption. We don't have to be contemptuous. We don't have to be overbearing. We don't have to be angry because Jesus didn't need to do all that. We do it as disciples. We testify as disciples. We learn to observe. We learn to listen. And, and yes, our convictions are firm, but being firm doesn't necessarily mean we have to be hostile. And we have to be defensive. Christ didn't need to do that, neither do we. But we are to be relentless. We as Jesus' disciples are called to testify as relentless servants to the truth. That we keep doing what we're doing. To be wrong about life, to be wrong about God, is very serious business. And this is an act of neighbor love. Of loving our neighbor. To do it again and again and again. First Peter tells us, Peter tells us that we have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. He says, when you're suffering and you, and you suffer differently than other people, you suffer but with hope and with joy. He says, people are going to naturally ask, what's with you? What's wrong with you? And he says, you've got to be ready to do that, to explain why you have hope. But not in a contemptuous, hostile way just beating somebody into intellectual submission is not the route. We do it as Jesus' disciples. And finally, living the big truth is difficult. At least it's difficult at first. It's not easy to do. Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker, says this. He says, Christ deeply loves us, but he strips us of the disillusionment of ourselves. Now, when we say disillusion, we usually think disappointment but he's saying that it remove, he removes the illusion that we have of ourselves. Whatever that may be, that we're the smartest person in the room, well, he'll take care of that. Or that we're the worst person in the room, he'll take care of that too. I like to think that I am a patient man. Not true. I like to think that I am not self-indulgent. Not true. Jesus holds a mirror up to ourselves and says, look at this. This is what we need to work on if you're expecting to love me and love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to work on these things. And it's not easy at first. Stephen Wright says, hard work pays off in the future, but procrastination pays off right now. <laughs> and most of us live that way. It's hard work at first, but it gets easier. When we see that value as number one, we're willing to make sacrifices to get to that number one value of joy and mercy and love. We're willing to do that, even though procrastination pays off right now. But it takes discipline. It takes hard work. It takes facing who we are. And it, face, it takes facing where we need to go. A couple of years ago, Sue and I went to see her um, Hillary Hahn in concert down in Portland. And she steps out there with her violin, no music at all, and plays for 45 minutes of some of the most beautiful music 
in the world. And the, the weird thing is that she makes it look so easy. But is it easy? No, it was hard. She put the work in, she put the discipline in so that she became free to be creative. It's hard at first, but we practice it. We face the truth and we look at the values we want and do what's necessary to get there. The big truth is that the Son of God became human. And that big truth is a gift. We don't create it. We don't invent it. We just discover it. We just discover it. And if anyone knows the truth about how to live, it's that guy. If anyone knows the truth of how to live, it's Jesus. Because he made life. He's the creator of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your goodness and your witness to us. We want to have life abundantly. And we look forward to spending eternity with you in union with the Savior, in union with the triune God. And so we plead this in Jesus' name. Amen.